0: Why did Kennedy take the appearance of Soviet missiles in Cuba in October 1962 so seriously? Previously at the History Café, we've discovered that they were no strategic threat to the United States and that America's allies even wanted Kennedy just to ignore them. Kennedy could have called Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev bluff, but he didn't. And that was because Kennedy was facing his own political crisis at home.
1: with news of Soviet nuclear missiles on Cuba in October 1962, Kennedy was forced to act. Not because they were a strategic threat, the Americans have far more missiles than the Soviets, but because Kennedy had fought his election campaign on being tough on Cuba and had already had one humiliating failure trying to topple Castro. With midterm elections just weeks away, Kennedy had to look tough. But the situation on Cuba was much more complicated than a few Soviet missiles. Faced with a persistent and determined American campaign of terrorism, Castro had been appealing to Moscow since September 1961, not only for basic military hardware, but also for soldiers, anti-aircraft missiles. Khrushchev had promised $133 million of equipment, but nothing had arrived. Whatever the Americans thought, the apparatchiks in the Kremlin were not actually interested in Cuba. It was an impoverished island far away with no strategic significance. So long as Castro was friendly wasn't worth wasting any more precious rubles on him.
0: But by the end of 1961, the Cuban economy was in a seriously bad way, suffering from an illegal American blockade and getting only paltry assistance from the Soviets. In the spring of 1962, Castro introduced rationing. Public opinion in Cuba now began openly blaming the Soviets for their problems. Given the level of CIA-backed terrorism and given the American blockade, Why did Moscow do nothing? Weren't they supposed to be the other superpower standing up to America? Well, contrary to all American expectations, Castro didn't go pleading to Moscow. Nor did he introduce a Soviet-style command economy in an attempt to solve his economic problems. In December 1961, he declared himself a Marxist-Leninist, but he was no Soviet stooge. If Moscow wouldn't help, he'd look elsewhere. He kicked Anibal Escalante, the leading Cuban communist off the island, sending him into exile in the Soviet Union. Soviet intelligence reported that Castro now stopped sharing any information with them.
1: By April 1962, Khrushchev knew that he had to do something significant for Castro. However unimportant Cuba seemed to be, the charismatic Castro's rapprochement with Moscow had been great publicity. Using his support would be another foreign policy disaster in the developing world. Chairman Mao in Beijing would be delighted, but strengthened his case that Moscow was too weak to lead international communism. It was at this point that Soviet and Cuban intelligence discovered an American force preparing for a possible invasion of Cuba before the American midterm elections in November 1962. In April 1962, there was a full-scale rehearsal off Puerto Rico, less than 50 miles from Cuba. Khrushchev may also have discovered that Kennedy had set a deadline the go-ahead for the invasion would be decided in July, or perhaps August 1962 at the latest. It was because Cuba was faced with the probability of massive American aggression that Khrushchev decided he had to persuade his apparatchiks in Moscow at last to take significant action over the island. intelligence that the Americans were planning a full-scale invasion of Cuba, Khrushchev decided in April sixty-two he would have to act. From May 1962, Soviet military personnel began arriving on Cuba. At first, Khrushchev promised just a motorised regiment and two and a half thousand men. It would probably have been enough to deter the American invasion, since for diplomatic reasons, the Americans would almost certainly have held back from a direct firefight with Soviet troops. But Castro loudly complained that he needed at least 10,000 men, Khrushchev sent one of his generals to talk things through, but on his first day in Havana he went for a swim and died of a heart attack.
0: It was at this point at the end of May 1962 that Khrushchev came up with a much bolder solution. He always claimed that his priority was to keep Castro on side. Since putting nuclear missiles on Cuba would be strategically irrelevant as we've seen, and since he probably needed no more than a scattering of Soviet troops to deter an American invasion, making a grand gesture in order to keep Castro on side would make sense as an explanation of why he decided to put nuclear missiles on Cuba. On the 24th of May 1962, he informed his presidium, his ruling council, the only way to save Cuba is to put missiles there. What he meant was not only keeping the Americans out, but also keeping an increasingly difficult Fidel Castro suite and averting the
1: political disaster of losing him. So, the Cuba missile crisis began not because Castro was a dangerous communist, but precisely because he wasn't. Khrushchev at first intended the missiles to keep this independent young revolutionary on site. But once his extraordinary project had got underway, the Soviet leader quickly began to develop other plans too. After all, it was obvious that once the Americans discovered nuclear missiles on Cuba, there would be an international crisis and international crises were exactly what Khrushchev had been trying to engineer for years in the bid to get concessions out of the Americans. So Khrushchev began developing further plans.
0: Since 2000, historians have been turning up scraps of evidence about a top-secret session of the Soviet Presidium held on the 1st of July 1962. According to historians Alexander Fesenko and Timothy Neftali, Khrushchev now presented his cabinet with a new elaboration of the Cuban Missile Plan. He explained to them that the missile programme would need to proceed in complete secrecy until mid-November 1962. It was important to maintain total secrecy until then, since Kennedy's midterm elections early that month would make the Americans volatile and difficult to deal with. Later on, in September 1962, Khrushchev would actually write to Kennedy warning that in the course of election struggle, carried away by passions, American politicians forget about common sense and begin playing with fire. But once the elections were over, Christoph told his presidium, he would go back to the United Nations in New York and reveal his missiles to an astonished world. Seizing his advantage, he would then present his key demand that the Americans and their allies should give up their grip on West Berlin.
1: It's obvious when you stop and look around at what else was going on in the years leading up to October 1962, that the Cuban missiles were, or would become, part of the bigger superpower game that had for many months been focused on Berlin. Once the missiles were in place, they would be the perfect bargaining chip. Khrushchev, always ready with an earthy remark, said that it would be like throwing a hedgehog down Uncle Sam's pants. He'd only remove the missiles in return for a promise that the Americans and their allies would abandon West Berlin. Given Khrushchev's track record of creating crises to gain concessions, particularly over Berlin, Kennedy shouldn't have been surprised. Given the vast American superiority in nuclear arms, he could have ignored Khrushchev's latest threat altogether or negotiated from a position of strength. But as we've seen, Kennedy had become far too publicly committed to getting rid of Castro to do nothing about the appearance of Soviet missiles on Cuba. And with the midterm elections just weeks away, making any concessions to the Soviets might be politically disastrous. So, now, we begin to understand why the Soviet missiles on Cuba were of no strategic importance but would set off an international crisis.
0: But how did it escalate so quickly and dangerously into the threat of nuclear war?
1: Khrushchev's missiles on Cuba were intended to keep Castro on the Soviet side, but also to get American concessions over Berlin. But in fact, the more he thought about it, the more advantages Khrushchev began to see in his plan.
0: Four days after the meeting with his presidium, Khrushchev wrote a bullying letter to Kennedy. Of course, he said nothing about the missiles, but he prepared the ground for his move at the United Nations later. Failure to solve the Berlin problem any longer he wrote to Kennedy, would involve a threat to peace which must be averted now when it is not too late. He summoned the American ambassador in Moscow and mischievously asked him whether Kennedy would prefer a crisis over Berlin before or after those important midterm elections. A few days later, for reasons that are now obvious to us, he demanded the Americans stop sending planes to spy on his shipping. Kennedy, looking nervously ahead at those elections, agreed so long as the Soviets put the Berlin question on ice. He didn't want a foreign policy crisis in the election run-up. Khrushchev agreed to behave himself, but only until the elections were over.
1: By now, Khrushchev was also thinking he might push the Americans, not only to get out of West Berlin, but also to sign a nuclear test ban treaty. It would enormously assist his struggling domestic economy if he could stop spending on more nuclear weapons and it would stop other countries, particularly West Germany, getting any nuclear weapons of their own. By 10th July 1962, Khrushchev had his plan ready. He would send 40 ballistic nuclear missiles, taking them from the ones currently stationed in Ukraine and Western Russia and aimed at targets in Western Europe. But what the popular version of the story doesn't tell you is that Khrushchev sent a great deal more than this. There would also be 42 rather aged 1940s Elysium-28 bombers, capable of carrying nuclear bombs. Also, two nuclear cruise missile regiments and 12 lunar nuclear battlefield missiles. The Soviets would also establish a Cuban base for submarines, armed with R-13 nuclear missiles, capable of hitting US military targets and cities well within the United States. There would also be smaller subs with nuclear torpedoes and a small surface fleet.
0: But even this was not everything. After all, as we've discussed, one of Khrushchev's priorities was to deter, or at worst, repel, an American invasion of Cuba. So he would also send two tank battalions and four motorised regiments, also a squadron of brand new MiG-21 fighters and a helicopter regiment. And to prevent American spy planes from flying over, he threw in 12 surface-to-air anti-aircraft missile units. Add it all up, and Khrushchev was dispatching 50,874 military personnel to Cuba. When Raul Castro, Fidel Castro's brother, heard what was coming, he grabbed the Soviet military representative on Cuba, Major General Dementiev,
1: and kissed him. Now, you recall that the CIA called their anti-Castro operation Mongoose, which was the codename for Thailand. The Soviets, either because they had the same idea or because they had a sense of humour, now codenamed their Cuba missile operation Anadir, a town in frozen Siberia. In fact, commanders were told their ships were going to Novaya Zemlya, in the Arctic, and lorry loads of skis and furs were delivered to the docks. Secrecy was paramount to Khrushchev's plan. Nobody was allowed even to use a typewriter. Orders were written out by hand and delivered in envelopes with wax seals. At first it went like clockwork. Oleg Bankovsky in Moscow, who was spying for the CIA and for the British, had no idea what was going on.
0: But by July 1962, as the ships were being loaded with military hardware, it was becoming more and more difficult to maintain secrecy. Military personnel kept turning up with Cuban-style beards. They'd also acquired suntans in the hot Russian summer. They were, they said, just following orders. As we now know, Castro and his Cuban band of revolutionaries had grown beards during their independent struggle, partly to stop outsiders infiltrating them. By now it was becoming obvious to everyone on the Soviet dockside where all these ships were headed. So the Soviets invented a cover story about sending aid to Cuba. They stretched tarpaulins over their ship's decks with agricultural machinery written on them in large English letters for the benefit of American spy planes. 2,000 Soviet soldiers crowded onto a cruise liner posing as tourists, agricultural workers and students. Aboard the 85 other ships that sailed backwards and forwards to Cuba that summer, the men were told to keep below. It got so hot, they each lost an average of nearly 10 kilos, and one died. If they spotted an American spy plane, a few would come on deck dressed in Czech shirts and dance like farmers. When they reached Cuba, they disembarked and unloaded at night.
1: Even so, Khrushchev's plan had a fundamental flaw. With an operation as vast as Anadir, absolute secrecy was just impossible to maintain. All along, Castro told Khrushchev that secrecy was a mistake. It'd be obvious to everyone on the island that something big was going on. Cuban authorities intercepted 17,000 letters from people on the island who'd seen special roads being built and houses knocked down to allow the long missile trailers to travel through the villages and across the island. There were so many American operatives on the island, or people working with them, that every ship that entered harbour was being reported to the Pentagon. American spy planes couldn't miss the military build-up and the gun emplacements being built. Talk among the Soviet military on the island was so careless that several Cuban officers turned themselves in to their own military authorities, saying they'd accidentally overheard classified information. They were imprisoned at a club on the outskirts of Havana. Khrushchev's response to Cuban worries over secrecy was typical. Don't worry, he told them. I'm going to grab Kennedy by the balls. So what
0: was Kennedy's response during that summer of 1962 as reports flooded in of this huge new Soviet military encampment 19 miles from Florida? Well, given how much fuss he'd made over Eisenhower's failure to deal with Cuba, you would expect him to take a tough line. But the last thing Kennedy wanted in 1962 with the elections coming up was another run-in with Khrushchev. He'd already asked him not to raise the Berlin question until after the elections. So Kennedy made a fateful decision. He decided to keep this obvious Soviet escalation on Cuba as secret as possible, especially from the American public, and especially until after those all-important midterm elections. It was a decision that would come back to bite him,
1: Khrushchev's plan, which was to place missiles on Cuba and then demand concessions from the Americans, depended absolutely on secrecy until he was ready to make his move. But a massive military build-up 90 miles from the Florida Keys was impossible to conceal. American intelligence reported what was going on to Kennedy. CIA began discussing contingency plans in the case that the Soviets put nuclear missiles there. But Kennedy's priority was to keep the news of what was going on away from American voters. He had to get through the midterm elections in November 1962 with as little trouble as possible. So he made no public move to challenge what the Soviets were doing. He made no attempt to stop the Soviets before it was too late.
0: Kennedy's had a clandestine back channel for communication with the Russians through a Soviet agent in Washington called Georgi Bolshakov. Soviets had used Bolshakov to talk privately to American administrations since the early 1950s, He'd first established a link with a journalist called Frank Holman, a longtime ally of Richard Nixon, the former vice-president. In May 1961, Holman introduced Bolshakov to Bobby Kennedy, and the Soviet spy became a friend of the family, a regular, at dinners and receptions.
1: In order to keep what was going on in Cuba as secret as possible, the Kennedys told nobody else that they were using Bolshakov as a back-channel. Even McGeorge Bundy, the President's old friend and assistant for security affairs, knew nothing about it. Nor did the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk. As a result, nobody with any expertise in Kremlin affairs was involved. What the Kennedys didn't know, therefore, was that by 1962 the Soviets had decided not to use Bolshakov in secret diplomacy anymore. They told him to stick to spying. Even so, since he had an in with the Kennedys, they still very occasionally used him to pass messages to the White House.
0: In July 1962, Kennedy sent a message through Bolshakov demanding to know what was going on on Cuba. Bolchikov came back with a reply, not to worry. There weren't any nuclear missiles. It was all just a precaution in case the Americans were thinking of invading. Which, of course, as we now know, they were. The Americans were assembling a force with the intention of kicking Castro out before those midterm elections. Kennedy was to take a final decision on the plan that July or August. With the obvious Soviet military build-up on the island, the invasion was now going to be impossible. When Kennedy met his team late in August 1962, they postponed invasion plans until at least the end of the year. But at least Kennedy had the private assurance from Bolshakov that there weren't going to be any nuclear weapons. That would be very difficult to handle in the run-up to the elections.
1: But by the end of August, the situation was becoming impossible for Kennedy to contain. The arrival of enormous numbers of Russians on Cuba was now all over the American press. Republican Senator Homer E. Capehart of Indiana began openly calling for an American military response. On 31st August 1962, another Republican, Senator Kenneth Keating, accused the President of being asleep at the wheel. He'd heard that the Soviets were constructing nuclear missile sites on the island. Hadn't Kennedy campaigned against Eisenhower for his weakness over Cuba? Kennedy's loud and repeated criticisms of Eisenhower... Blunder, inaction, retreat, and failure were coming back to haunt him. With those midterm elections coming up, news of a Soviet military build up in Cuba was turning into a political disaster waiting to happen.
0: Kennedy had the private Soviet assurance through Bolshevik that there were no nuclear weapons on Cuba, but now he needed something more public. On the 4th of September, Bobby Kennedy summoned the Soviet ambassador, the urbane Anatoly Dobrinin, and demanded a formal answer. Were the Soviets or were they not sending nuclear missiles to Cuba? No, said Debrinan, they were not. Which, so far as he knew, was the correct answer, since for obvious reasons he'd been kept out of the loop. He repeated the official line nothing will be undertaken before the American elections that could complicate the international situation. As we've seen, the Soviets understood very well just how important the elections were for Kennedy and just how jumpy he would be until they were over.
1: Later that day, Jack Kennedy summoned 15 leading senators to lunch at the White House and told them what Debrinian had said. Pierre Salinger, his press secretary, went on TV and read a public statement in his characteristically dry and low-key way. Keating had got it all wrong. There were no offensive weapons on Cuba. Were it to be otherwise, said Salinger, the gravest issues would arise. As we shall see, it was another hostage to fortune. If the Kennedys hoped that would kill the story, they were being over-optimistic. Keating wasn't taken in. He went on jeering at Kennedy for doing nothing. After all Kennedy's accusations against Eisenhower, it was becoming a more and more difficult charge to deal with.
0: All of which means that when on 16th of October, Mac Bundy presented Jack Kennedy with those incriminating photographs in his bedroom showing Soviet nuclear sites on Cuba, we can be pretty confident what Jack's first thought was. Not... Oh no, our backs are against the wall, we're going to be annihilated in 17 minutes by Soviet nukes. He already knew the chances of that were negligible. Much more likely was, oh no, we're going to be annihilated in three weeks at the midterm elections by Republicans like Senator Keating.
1: Kennedy's problem with Republicans like Keating wasn't just about the obvious and spiralling Soviet build-up on Cuba. Kennedy was also in deep trouble in his domestic agenda. That's why success at the midterm elections in November 1962 was crucial to the future of his presidency, and also why success or failure were very much in the balance. This is the perspective on the Cuban Missile Crisis that very few accounts even notice, but it affects everything Kennedy did, and we'll take a look at it next time at the History Cafe. <laughs> For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.